Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You will be hearing that melody, that tune later today. You do know that. Hmm? Yes. Yeah. You will hear that later today. <laughs> inside, inside joke, inside joke. You know, men, we have this disability, it's called sport. And you bear with us so patiently. Please bear with us patiently. Please be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. That's the theme of my life. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. One, one, thank you. One, one lone voice. As we study God's word and as we journey on this road of discipleship, it doesn't take long to realize that there are many things in Scripture that seem to contradict one another, that seem to be completely discordant. On closer study, we can uh, decode much of that and demystify much of that, but it takes, it takes sincere uh, desire to inquire and understand how God can both be fully man and fully God, um, it, how God can uh, be Savior and judge. These are things that stand, seem to stand in contradiction and in paradox. Some of my friends here will remember a sign at the old building at the Baptist Theological College. I wish I'd taken a picture, but in those days we didn't have cell phones, you know, and taking selfies of everything. Um, I had a camera somewhere in those days, but you actually had to dig it out. But I wish I'd taken a picture of this little, little framed little uh, saying uh, just inside the main entrance exit to that old, beautiful Herbert Baker stone building that we were privileged to study at. It was known as the College of Knowledge in those days. But there was this little, this little sign, and it's basically it spoke about the fact that the job at college was to confuse us, but at a much higher level. And the, the sign told us that when you leave here, you will definitely be confused at a much higher level. And then they hit that one out of the park, that's for sure. Because I personally didn't have a problem with the incarnation that God took on human form until I started to study it and realize how, how mind-blowing these things actually are. So we have to get comfortable with, with, with this paradox, this things that are intention. And I remember Dr. Rex, the boss, we used to call him, telling us that we'd have to hold one of these biblical truths in one hand and another one in the other hand, and, and it seemed like they would tear us apart, but you have to hold on to, these, to these, these tensions, these paradoxes. And the kingdom of God is full of many such paradoxes. The kingdom of God is both and. It's not, it's not the worldview of either or. We have this either or, so we argue these either or debates, and the Bible's not even an either or, coming from an either or worldview. Uh, and it's also now and not yet. So the kingdom of God is here, the reign of God is here, but the fulfillment of God's reign is still a future reality. These are things that we hold in paradox, that we hold in tension. And I want to encourage you, as you live out your faith, and as you continue to study the word of God, and as you're confronted with questions that people have, because hopefully people are asking you 
questions about your faith. Um, you can put me on speed dial uh, for emergencies. I am available 24-6 or 24-7. Some of you have seen my status. I did take a day off. That's crazy. I know I'm frail. I'm weak, but I do need a day off. But for the rest, you can phone me. But I'd really like you to grow in your understanding and be able to engage with people and celebrate the paradox that is the kingdom of God. And we're going to encounter a number of those in the text this morning in Acts chapter 14 from verse 1 to verse 20. So let me read as you follow another amazing passage of Scripture. Remember, we are in this series called The Return. And why is our study in Acts called The Return? Because the book of Acts opens fascinatingly with chapter 1. Isn't that amazing? That a book would open with chapter 1. But in chapter 1 of Acts, we see that the disciples are kind of gazing into the sky. Old dear Makar, and not too sure what's going on. And the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand there gazing into the sky? The same Jesus who you saw leave will return. And so the whole focus of our lives, the whole focus of discipleship, should be an expectation of the return of Christ. And we should do everything in that light, that he is coming soon. One amen. You can make me work hard this morning. I only have like, I've got half an hour to raise the dead. That's going to be hard. Somebody, by the way, defined preaching as half an hour to raise the dead. But it doesn't apply to you. It doesn't apply to you. But let me read the text. At Iconium, Acts 14.1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual, this was their habit, this was their custom, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And in the New Testament, the word belief doesn't just mean a mental belief. It means a heart belief that actually manifests in a lifestyle. So that's not to be taken lightly. A number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe, and we've come across them a few times, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, the believers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly, that's another characteristic of the early church, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And we'll see one of those in a moment. The people of the city were divided. Here's another contrast. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and we see that's again capital J, so that's the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leadership. Others were the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat and stone them, Paul and Barnabas. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. Say Derby, you can say Derb, say Derby. And to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. This is a very similar incident to chapter 4. He listened to Paul. 
as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Wow. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. So in their mother tongue, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. They had a tradition in their culture, in their religion, that Zeus and Hermes had visited previously and had been mistreated, had not been granted hospitality and generosity. And so there was a curse on these people. So in their culture and their understanding, it's very understandable that they would respond, we don't want to mess this opportunity up. And Hermes, Paul was called Hermes because he's a speaker. Hermes was the god in Greek mythology who would speak and represent the other gods. And we actually get the term for the study of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, from this name. That's all extra just for free. Just thought I'd share that with you. Because I find it interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to these gods who are appearing in human form. Isn't that interesting? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd. They're horrified by this, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Look at verse 16. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony, without a witness. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, oh boy, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, they come, the baddies riding into town. They came from Antioch and Iconium, the cities from which Paul and Barnabas had just recently fled, and won the crowd over. How fickle are the crowds? They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, you know, you just can't put a good man down, eh? But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city for more. Uh, I added that. But The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbs. No, not Durban, not KZN. Derby. What a fascinating passage of Scripture filled with some of these paradoxes that we find in the reality, the eternal reality that is the kingdom 
of God. And there's fascinating backstory. Please do yourself a favor and, and do some background reading in the book of Acts. We're going to be here for a while, so you won't get left behind. And there are brilliant resources. Some of them are online, and then there's some wacky stuff online. And again, if you're not sure what's good, what's not so good, just um, send me a mail. But I'd love you to do more reading because there's just, man, there's so much meat here. And of course, I have to do a lot of editing and leaving stuff out, which is very painful. Uh, but there are some beautiful truths we want to draw from this text. And the first one is that the kingdom, the kingdom of God, here's one first paradox, the kingdom unites and the kingdom divides. You see there are two, there are two groups here. Those that side with Paul and Barnabas, that turn from their idolatry, from their sin, and there are those that are even more entrenched in their disbelief, their unbelief, and, and insist on sticking to their customs, to their culture, to their traditions, to what is safe and known, so they perceive it to be. And whenever the gospel is preached, the gospel of the kingdom, it unites and divides. Jesus said, I've come to divide families. Families will divide over the gospel. And some of you, unfortunately, know that tragic reality in your own life, in your own families and your extended family, because the gospel divides. But at the same time, it unites, because when we come to faith, and this is one of the amazing things about the family of God, we come to faith from different languages, cultures, backgrounds, identities, loyalties, and we are united in and under the Lordship of Christ. But there are very many people have told me, I've seen it happen as well, you know, you lose certain friends when you get really serious about Jesus. You lose, you lose certain friends, even sometimes Christian friends. You think you're a bit over the top, you get a bit carried away, you know. Why, why are you so fascinated and so sort of obsessed with Jesus? Well, praise God, somebody noticed that, firstly. But is there something else? You got a better deal? You can offer me a better deal than Jesus? I'd really like to hear it. So it unites and it divides. And it will always do that. And one of the things that throws us and is very painful, and I've seen it again in, in people's lives, older and younger people, how families will ostracize them because they love Jesus. I think I've told you before, I remember a young person coming to faith uh, by the grace of God in the youth ministry and, and their family was not just non-religious, they were anti-Christian. And the parents actually said to this young person, and they came and shared it with me, my dad said, I would rather you become a drug addict than a Christian. The gospel unites, and the gospel divides. And we have to embrace that reality. We have to get comfortable with that tension. That doesn't mean we stop caring about unsaved people, especially, you know, if they're family, but we have to accept that this is going to be part of the package and sometimes the way we present the gospel to people, we must be very careful because we really do oversell, you know, that come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. 
No, you must tell the people, come to Jesus and you're going to get a whole new set of problems. But you won't experience them or face them alone. That's the big difference. You will never, ever be alone, ever, ever again. No matter how lonely we might feel at times, the Lord our God is with us. And the disciples in Acts and throughout church history and today in Egypt, they know this and it's our privilege and our joy to remind them of this as we visit and as we pray and as we share the kingdom together. Fascinating too that this man is healed in demonstration of the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament that he came to set the captives free, give life to the dead, healing to the lame and the sick. And this is part of the kingdom reality. But it doesn't happen every time. And so I want to hasten to add something that has been abused and exploited and misinterpreted. Look at verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked intently at him. So they locked eyes. This is a divine appointment. This is the, this is the kingdom moment. They locked eyes on each other. And Paul saw through the Spirit, you can put that in parentheses, Tisanakis, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And as a result of that, some Christians say, look, if you don't get healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. In order to make that statement, that would, that would imply that every time somebody is healed, this happens. It doesn't. God is not... He's not stuck to a template. He can do what he likes, how he likes, when he likes, remember? In this instance, there's this meeting of hearts and minds and spirit. And this happened, and praise God for it. And praise God, it still happens. But to say this has to happen every time that you have to believe, you have to claim your healing, that's not a biblical teaching, unfortunately. So praise God that he does it. And the kingdom of God, the reign of God, breaks from eternity into time, and we have these amazing demonstrations. So when we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, be ready. Be ready. Because God responds. God moves and responds to prayer. But don't expect God to do the same thing the same way every time. He's not that boring. He's not that boring. He's the most creative person in the entire universe. So it happens this way in this time, in this instance, and it's a demonstration of the power of God, which, by the way, look, is completely misunderstood and misinterpreted by the locals because of their tradition and their culture and their expectation. Zeus and Hermes pitched up once in the history of this is myth, this legend, but what they believe arrived in their area and it wasn't given any shelter except by an old man and uh, an old man, his wife, and, and they, they, the gods turned their little shanty into this massive palace and they cursed the rest of the inhabitants because they'd rejected. So this is the paranoia. So when they see a miracle, they completely misinterpret it, don't they? Hello? Let me know if I'm running away on down a tangent. Just go. Was a lap. Come back. But there's so much going on here. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, 
So this is a totally different language. It's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's not Aramaic, it's Lyconian. So Paul and Barnabas didn't initially understand that language, and then they started to work out, oh my word, we've got a problem here. They want to worship us, they think we're gods. And, and they used that opportunity to, to again preach the gospel. And here we see the second paradox, that the kingdom saves the message of the kingdom, is what I'm implying here, the message of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and His eternal, sovereign reign that cannot be challenged. The gates of hell will not prevail. Darkness will not overcome the message of the gospel, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The kingdom saves and the kingdom condemns. Because if we accept the truth, we're saved. If we reject the truth... We're kind of doubling down on our condemnation. And scripture tells us that man, and I think it's Romans 1, mankind is without excuse before God. But to hear the gospel and reject it is to condemn yourself. And it's very interesting. There's a bit of a play on words here when we read about this healing in verse 8. When Paul says, stand up on your feet, the man jumped up and began to walk. He had faith to be healed. The word healed is the same in the Greek as the word saved and delivered. So you can use those interchangeably. So we are, by his stripes we are healed. Yes, the new creation takes place. The, Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah begins to be fulfilled in our life. But our our ultimate healing is still a future event. You still with me? Okay? So we need to remember that if we pray for someone to be healed, just know you're praying that they die. It's another paradox. Welcome to the kingdom. Because what is ultimate healing? Death for the believer, because then we receive our glorified body. So then Christians pray for Christians to get healed and the Christian dies and they say, God didn't answer my prayer. Oh no, he answered it 100%. So see how easy it is to misinterpret what God is doing because our understanding is too narrow and too small. And so we are healed. We're, God in Christ restores that which we lost in the Garden of Eden. And what did we lose in the Garden of Eden? We lost our humanity. I could just get tired of me saying this. When they say, Dad, I'm only human. I say, no, no. That's not your problem. That's not our problem. Our problem is we're not human enough. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were fully human. We are actually less than human. And the way society is carrying on, we're actually way closer to animal than to human. Hello. Good. You, you have to, you're in the front row. I'm enjoying, i got four people in the front row. This is like, this is a revival, man. Even if it took a few ropes to make it happen, you know, I'll take it. I'm so desperate. So the gospel saves and the gospel condemns. And yes, we are healed. But it's a process. Do you know that there's three stages to being saved as well? Because it's, remember, it's the, same, it's the same root, it's the same word, it's the same... Linguists call this a field of meaning. Okay, it's got, this, it's got these meanings. 
When you accept Jesus, you get saved. When you're a disciple on the journey of faith, you're being saved. So event, process, and then when you, when you see Jesus, uh, oh, don't you love the euphemisms for death? Pop your clogs, buy the farm, kick the bucket. Have you never heard any of those? Oh, well, there's a couple new ones for your repertoire. Because we, we used euphemisms for death because you know, death is so inconvenient, isn't it? It just really messes up our plans. So we, we try to gloss over it. But we should, in a, a Scripture, and here's another paradox, we live for Jesus, but we live as if we might die today because maybe we will. No one has a guarantee of that. So live like it's your last day on earth. And that means live life to the full. That's the abundant life of John 10.10. 10. I've come that you might have the life of the kingdom. So we get saved at conversion. We're being saved. That's sanctification. That's discipleship. And then we, we're fully saved when we see Jesus, and that's glor- glorification. So we're, we're, we're healed. We're being healed, and we will ultimately be healed. Does that make sense? Okay, because this I'm I'm spending a bit of time here because this is such a misunderstanding within Christianity, and we argue about this. We all we're like blind. Here's a good analogy for understanding Scripture and the paradoxes and the mysteries of Scripture. We're like blind men standing around an elephant. We heard this illustration before. One guy's feeling the trunk, another guy's feeling a tusk, another guy's on the side. Some unfortunate suckers at the tail. You know, and they're all arguing. They're blind, so they're using touch and their other senses, and they're arguing about what an elephant's really like. Are, are any of them wrong? No, but by the same, are all, any of them completely right? No. Do you know how many church splits we could prevent if we just accept this reality? How much more unity would be in the body of Christ if we just understand these things? But we don't. Why don't we? Free steak, free steak lunch to anybody who can answer that question for me. All right. So the gospel saves and the gospel condemns. Jesus says, Matthew 16, 19, he says to Peter, you are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. Which literally means on, on rocks just like you. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. I will give you. Come on, eight o'clock service. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, wow, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, So, million dollar question, what are the keys of the kingdom? Ah, Well, if we're going to do hermeneutics, going to do biblical interpretation, what did the keys mean, the term the keys of the kingdom or the keys of the city mean? Because every city was a mini kingdom, had a ruler, had a whole hierarchy. There was a keeper of the keys, somebody whose responsibility it was to lock the gates of the city at night. Very, very senior function of great responsibility. 
and that same person would open the gates of the city during the day. And that key, the good thing about this key, you couldn't lose it because it was about as long as the pew. Because it had to slide through this massive lock and these thick doors to open that mechanism to open the gates of the city and then people could freely move in and out. At night, big, it was like a beam, literally. Sometimes more than one person would have to carry it. And they'd slide that into that big mechanism and lock it. You'll see that happening even when, when Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the walls and the gates. They lock people out because they were trading on the Sabbath. You can go back and read about that in Nehemiah. So the gates of a city represented that city's protection, its sovereignty, um, its identity, everything. So the one who carried the keys of the city it was a major responsibility. So Jesus hands that, the keys of the kingdom of God over to his disciples. The first recipient was Peter, but Peter, not, you know, he's not the main man because in three time, he was a main man in the season, but even in Acts we see different main men. All start with P's. Peter, Philip, Paul. I don't know how this stuff works. It just does. But they are carrying the keys, and we carry the keys because if you witness to someone, not if, no, forgive me, when you witness to someone, then the ball's in their court. And we see, remember, we see this other paradox between the free will of man and this, the election of God. It's everywhere in Scripture. So now you witness to someone, you're opening the gate, you're opening the entrance to the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel. If they walk through that, they're loose, they're set free. I've come to set the captive free. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Pardon me, but if they reject the kingdom, they're bound. Now, every breath that we take, I know there's a song like that. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not talking about that. But every breath we take is an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. Today is the day of salvation. It's an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. But we see in, in Acts 14 and everywhere else that there is this mixed response. Some accept, some reject. As somebody said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. It does indeed. So some people's, are, people's hearts are softened. The Spirit of God is at work. Other people harden their hearts. And Scripture says, do not harden your hearts today if you hear God's voice. It's a cry in, in Hebrews speaking about the people rejecting the truth of God and not going to the promised land when they should have. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Enter God's rest. It's another paradox. So that's the binding and loosing. And again, very important, we understand this. A lot of misunderstanding around these things. The kingdom saves and the kingdom condemns. So Paul and, I mean, talk about, I remember the first time I heard the word fickle. It was probably, it was high school, grade 10, and 8. We were doing Julius Caesar. Anybody else have to suffer through 
Okay, I thought it was terrible then, I think it's fantastic. Okay. I actually think it's very cool. One of our sons, you know, I never, I withhold names, remember? To protect the not so innocent. So, but one of our sons has a complete works of William Shakespeare in his room. I'm so proud of him. That's so cool that he has that. Because I think it's amazing, I think, now. And I think it was in the opening scene, If was it the opening scene? Definitely the opening act. But where they're talking, some of these guys are talking, and they talk about how fickle the crowds are. Can somebody find that for me in Julius Caesar Act 1, scene 1? Don't Google it now. No, you actually can. If you promise that's all you're doing on your phone. But this word fickle, people, don't we see it all the time? The relationships are fickle. People are fickle. It was Marie Antoinette that said the crowd is revolting. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, oof, man, that's bad. I know, bad. So, there we have it. There's these different responses, and they flip. Like, like the people have said to Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us now. What are they saying a week later? Crucify him. So, you know, people, don't, don't, never climb up on the pedestal that people build for you. Never climb up on that. It's very wobbly, this, by the way. Because it's made by another fallen, broken human being. Very wobbly. You're going to fall off it. So don't climb on but, but they will change their opinion about you. And sadly, many of us have this in our own experience. We've had relationships that are beautiful, amazing, beautiful bonds, really close, and something happens. Somebody telling me just the other day that one of their best friends in their life, just something happened, and it was an innocuous little thing, and haven't spoken for years. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking. But guess what? We're also fickle, aren't we? So, you know, and again, we want people to judge us on our actions, or, or rather, we want them to judge us on our intentions, and we judge other people according to their actions. Yeah. So we're in the mob here, what I'm trying to say. Let's put ourselves in a pair of sandals in this crowd because we're in this mob. And from wanting to worship and offer sacrifices, they get incited, stirred up to violence. This is mob mentality. It just switches like that. One of the most dangerous experiences I've ever had as a trauma chaplain uh, is domestic violence. Nobody likes to respond to domestic violence because you go in to try to stop them killing each other, and in no time they're both trying to kill you. True story. True story. So that's how quick that's how quick it can change. And that's what happens here. From worship to murder. Paul gives a beautiful witness. I'm not going to spend time on it now because the, the, the testimony here is very similar to Act 17. So we're going to look at it again. It'll be in more detail in Act 17, slightly different audience. We can look at that. But let's jump down. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. 
They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around them, they probably prayed. You know, disciples do that, Christians do that. It's, it's possible that he was near death. They left him for dead. It doesn't say he was. It's very possible he was very near death. I don't know if you've ever been stoned. Can anybody tell us what that feels like? They say, by the way, if you want to get really stoned, drink wet cement. That's what they say. These they people, they say these crazy things. So I don't know what it's like to get stoned in any sense of the word. Um, but, it, I mean, it's going to be open wounds, broken bones. It, it's probably not going to be a good day if we get, you know, if somebody gets stoned. It's, not, it's going to really ruin your day. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. What's up with this guy, Paul? You can't put a good man down. He just got back into the scrap. Back into the city. They dragged you out of the city, left you for dead. Back you go. Wow. We need to remember this when we're having a bad day. Eh? And when we, when we, here's another little aside, but when we experience a failure, what's the best thing to do? Go back and try again. One of the first things I learned about horse riding, and we learned as kids, you know, we were brainless and fearless. So we rode bareback and jumped over obstacles and did all crazy, rode fast and, well, I mean, you're bulletproof when you're a kid. I did fall off a whole bunch of times, but I did exactly what they taught me. When a horse throws you, the moment you hit the ground, run back and get on the horse. So sometimes I was like midair and I was already turning around. You're, you're not going to beat me today. I'm going to get you. But that's what Paul does. And that's what we need to do. Because we are on the winning side, aren't we? The victory is secure. It's not up for debate. Will we beat Ireland? Won't we beat Ireland? You know? Jolly well hope so. But, but for us, the victory is secure. The victory is secure. So the last thing I want to share with you, the last little insight is the last paradox, the last apparent contradiction. And you can see these are all very tightly knit. They stick, they're very close together. The kingdom expands and the kingdom contracts. Because every time somebody comes to faith, the kingdom expands. The kingdom grows. Every time somebody accepts Christ, the kingdom grows. But at the same time, the kingdom contracts because if somebody rejects Christ, again, that, that binding loosing, that opening closing. So there's this, there's this fluctuation as, as people are encountered by Christ, they hear the gospel. How many ways can people in South Africa hear the gospel? Gazillions of ways. I mean, most of you, I still don't understand this, some of you rather, listen to more than one sermon a week. I like hats off to you. 
because I'm busy enough trying to get this right, you know. Just do the stuff I find for one sermon. If you can do listen to five sermons and do all of that in a week, I don't know how you're paying, getting paid. I don't know how you're holding down a job. But, you know, there, there's this response. People have the opportunity all the time to accept the gospel, to walk into the presence of God, to bow the knee and acknowledge the King of Kings, or not. This is the reality. This is the dynamic. But even for us as believers, there, there, are, there are times when, when we really feel, I'm sure I'm not the only one, when you really feel closed in, you're in a squeeze, you're in a tight spot, you've got a dilemma, you've got a big decision to make, there's weighty consequences either way, there's stuff going on. Remember, God doesn't take our problems away. He gives us more problems because we're not alone. We're not alone. And if you go just down in the passage to verse 22, you'll read this verse, this statement. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Is that because God's trying to keep us out? No, he wants us in. But it's not an easy life. If, if we learn anything from the book of Acts, we'll see that this is a life of challenge. This is a life of, of trial. This is a life of trauma. It's a life of refining. It's a life of, of growing, of maturing. But it ain't easy. It ain't easy, that's for sure. It's gloriously possible because of Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father. But it, nobody said it's going to be easy. So if you, if you are taking strain, if you're struggling and you think that God's abandoned you, God's let you down... I prayed that you'd remove this illness, this burden, this problem, this trial. God says, he did answer your prayer. He probably said no. And he said, I trust you with this. I trust you with this. You're ready for this. No, I'm not, God. Remember Moses? I want you to set my people free. No, somebody else. You know, anyone else, Lord, anyone else. I'm not ready. I stutter. How many excuses do we give God not to serve Him, not to be used by Him? Let's stop making the excuses. Let's just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, that's the only right response. And there will be times when we are in hardship and difficulty. God has not abandoned you. He's trusting you. Very interesting insight by John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers of all time, was the bishop in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. What an amazing story. But he suggested, you know, we, we know about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and people think it was maybe this or maybe that. Um, John Chrysostom, Bishop Chrysostom, suggested that maybe his thorn in the flesh was all the wounds he suffered from following Jesus. Okay, so he's stoned here, he's beaten twice, he's shipwrecked. I mean, he says in Philippians, I know what it is to have much, I know what it is to have nothing. I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ. He gives me strength. Maybe. And in Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 12, he says that no one give me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Like, don't give me a hard time anymore, man. I'm carrying lots of scars. I've broken bones. I've, split, I've shed blood for Jesus. 
here, just by this is, this is another little bit for free. From the second century, there was an elder who wrote very, very well of Paul and actually got disciplined by his church because they said he was worshiping Paul. But here's, a, here's his account of what, what did Paul look like? This is the best accurate, best description of him. A man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body. Okay, this is the second century language. With eyebrows, he had a monobrow. Did you know Paul had a monobrow? With eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Full of friendliness. Now he appears like a man and now he has the face of an angel. Isn't that a beautiful description? But he carried on. He carried on. Forgive me, one, one, one last groaner before I end this. Paul got stoned but he rocked on. Eh? <laughs> he rocked on. And so should we. But let, we've got to hold these things in tension. And I want you to celebrate that tension. And when people ask us difficult questions about, about Christianity, and I say, thank you for asking. It's one of my favorite questions. I tell people when they ask me, I've been grappling with that for years. Maybe you can help me understand it. Come join me in the mystery of trying to understand how cool this is. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you. How we thank you for who you are. For your love, for your faith, your faithfulness, your steadfast love, your abounding grace. Thank you, Lord, that you know, you know that we are dust. We're fickle. We're frail. We're under construction to perfection. We're works in progress. And there are so many issues in tension. One paradox after another. And then we come to scripture and you just blow our minds. You overwhelm our hearts. And sometimes because we're so small and frail and confused, we get disillusioned and we think you have failed us. Or you care about other people but not me. Thank you, Lord, that as we continue in this great narrative of your work in the book of Acts, that we can truly find ourselves here. So many of these characters. And we can find your grace. We can find your love and we can find your delight for your children. And Lord, help us, maybe soon, if we're not there already, get to the place where we can celebrate the paradox. Glory in the mystery and the wonder. Of who you are. And who you've called us to be. Take your glory, Lord.
Amen.